And we'll be looking at chapters 25 to 27 and 30 and 31, obviously not exhaustively, but representatively, because these chapters all hang together, and they are about what Moses was receiving during those 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. We're going to break it up into a couple of different sections, looking at the the structure that was revealed to him there, and then the priesthood that operated within that structure. Exodus chapter 25, 1 to 22, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are some well-known books from literature that have a certain pattern that can be frustrating at first, but then make sense later. If you think of Moby Dick, for example, or Les Miserables, or uh, there's a book about Mexico by James Michener. There's a fairly well-known book in, in Spanish, Como Agua para Chocolate, like water for chocolate. And these are all set up the same way. They have a compelling narrative that takes you along, but they keep interrupting the narrative. Like every other chapter is a description. And so, for example, in Moby Dick, it's a description of whaling. So it leaves the pursuit of the whale, and then it talks about some aspect of whaling. Uh, In the case of the book Mexico, it's about bullfighting. Or in the case of Les Miserables, it is about different aspects of France. There's a whole chapter on the sewage system of Paris. And it's a long chapter about the sewage of Paris. 
en, en, uh, in, in Como Agua para Chocolate, every other chapter is a recipe uh, because the recipes go along with the story. Now, it's easy when reading these to get irritated and say, come on, let's get on with the story. And I have to admit that I'm not much in the kitchen, so I jumped over when I read Como Agua para Chocolate, I jumped over all of the, all of the recipes. Uh, but I'm sure I missed a lot because they must have been important. Um, and what happens, though, as we're reading these, we can get drawn in. Because first we're irritated, like, come on, let's get on with the story. And then we get drawn in and we start wondering how the details, let's say, of the sewage system of Paris is going to come to play. And then we get to the end of the story and we find this scene that takes place underground in Paris. The sewage system comes into play. And that's how it works in these stories, these details that seem to be unrelated to the, to the plot. They come into play and you say, oh, now I get it. And that's what we have here. We've been in an exciting story here, the exodus of the people of Israel from, from Egypt. And we got to this, this exciting situation with a covenant being confirmed last week in front of Mount Sinai. And then Moses goes up with his assistant Joshua and he leaves in charge the leaders of Israel and he goes up and the top of the mountain is engulfed in fire. And then we get chapter after chapter after chapter of architecture, of interior design, about clothing and details. And we have that from chapter 25 all the way through chapter 31. And it's easy to get bogged down in the details and impatient and say, let's get on with the story. What happened to Moses when he got engulfed in the fire? What's happening on the ground down at the foot of Mount Sinai? Well, we'll have to wait till chapter 32 to find out what was going on. But I hope you will see that as we look at some of these details, that they will come into play later. And we'll say, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. So what we're going to do is look at the structure that Moses was commanded to build, the furniture that went in that structure, and then next week, looking at chapters 28 and 29, the people that were to minister, the priests that were to minister within that structure and using the furniture in certain ways. So the structure. The nature of the structure is that it was going to be a sanctuary. Now, that word we usually think of as a refuge, but the word of sanctuary has to do with sanctity, has to do with holiness. So the idea of a sanctuary is a holy place. And if you look at verse 8 of chapter 25, and let them make me a sanctuary, a sanctuary. So it is a holy place. It is a set-apart place. It is not a common run-of-the-mill place. It is a place that is set apart by God and for God. That's what it means to be holy. The purpose of the structure was for God to dwell in the midst of his people. Same verse, chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Dwell in their midst. Um, the word tabernacle, as it's translated in our version, is uh, from the same root as the verb to dwell. So he says, I want to dwell in this sanctuary. Then verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, that's the same, uh, the same root there, to dwell and the dwelling. And so when you think of tabernacle, when you find that word, think dwelling. It is a place to dwell. 
Uh, this, this dwelling is also called three other things. It's called a sanctuary, it's called a dwelling, and it's also called the tent. It's also called the tent of meeting, and it's also called the tent of testimony. And that was appropriate. In what were the people living in those days? They were living in tents. And so if God is going to dwell among his people and as his people, like his people, he's going to live in a tent as well. And so we have the tent for God to dwell in. The materials for the construction came from voluntary contributions. And this is a beautiful description of generosity here. It says, whomever has their heart moved, they should give these things. And you'll notice that these things are very, very precious items. And you think, how did this group of ex-slaves come up with gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, twined linen, goat's hairs, and so on? Well, we already know where it came from because if you go back to their exodus from, uh, from Egypt, do you remember that God said, ask all your neighbors? And they were so panicked and they were so glad to get rid of these folks for whose sake plagues were coming on the people of Egypt that they, they just showered them with gifts. And the word that's used is that they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians. And so these ex-slaves went out laden with all these precious materials. Now, it's interesting that if you look at these precious materials, you can go back to chapter 12, verse 36, the plundering of the Egyptians. Some of these elements recall elements that we find in the creation story. This is fascinating. We have these, these precious elements, and if you go back and read the creation story, you find some of the same elements there. And then later you also find, we find these cherubim, these angelic creatures. And if you go back to the creation story, after the first sin, there were these, these cherubim that were guarding the way. And, and it looks like these elements are, are reminding us of the, of the creation and what went wrong after the creation. So it looks like subtly we're, we're learning that this is a new creation going on here. This tent, this meeting place, this structure is going to be the start of a, a new era, a new creation using some of these creational elements to, to go into this structure to remind us of what God did in the beginning. The pattern of the structure, the pattern of the structure was of a square, the most holy place, which was part of a rectangle, the tent, the other part of the rectangle being the holy place, within a much larger rectangle, which was the courtyard. Now, the tent took up about one-sixth of the area of the courtyard, so it was just a small part. It wasn't that big a structure, uh, it, and it took up a part of the courtyard. And we'll see that some things took place within, some things took place without. And it was a, a tiered entry system. We've already seen this in chapter 4, or 24 rather, we have a tiered system. You remember the people stayed at the foot of the mountain. The leaders were able to go partway up the mountain, and Moses, along with Joshua, were able to go all the way up the mountain. So there was this tiered approach to God. We find that here. The people were allowed to go into the courtyard, the big rectangle. The priests were allowed to go into the tent, the first part of it, the holy place. And then the high priest, once a year, was allowed to go into the holy of holies, that square within the rectangle, within the rectangle. 
Now, there have been efforts, and there are, there are some. I think there's one up in Pennsylvania. There are replicas of the, uh, of the tabernacle. It, it's, uh, it's able, we're able to build it pretty well, but we don't have all the details here. If you try to actually, if you're an architect or a builder and you try to do this, you'll say, well, what about this and what about that? There are many details that are left out, but it looks like that Moses got those details because there is a very clear warning and admonition to do it exactly, exactly like God showed. Look at verse 9 of chapter 25. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. And then you go to the, the last verse of chapter 25. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So the nature sanctuary, the purpose to dwell, the materials from the Egyptians, the pattern was this uh, concentric uh, quadrilaterals, a square, rectangle, rectangle, and then the skills. You think, how are they going to build this? Where were, they got the materials, but how are these ex-slaves going to do this? Well, some of them were probably craftsmen in Egypt, but when we go to the, toward the end of this section about the tabernacle, we meet a couple of men. Uh, in chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting stones, etc. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, uh, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. What do we have here? We have spiritual gifts here, gifts of the Holy Spirit that enabled the people to construct the dwelling place of God. And this is the anticipation for what we find in the New Testament of spiritual gifts. And they are for the same purpose, to build up the dwelling place of God as we will see. So um, in, chapter, in chapter 31, it's easy to get lost with the various details, but there's a helpful summary in chapter 31, verses 7 to 11. There we have a summary of the articles. Verse 7, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin and its stands with the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments for his sons, for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. That's a, that's a list of all that they were going to build. And that's, uh, that's helpful to take that list and try to fill in the details there. And you can see the diagram that's on the back of your, your handout or the one that's behind me. Now, the furniture. The furniture, we read about one piece of furniture, and it's the main piece of furniture. And just like in our homes, where the best piece of furniture is hardly ever used, that's how it was here. The most important piece of furniture, the one piece of furniture uh, without which there would be no tent, there would be no dwelling place. It is traditionally called the ark. And that may be unfortunate because when we think of ark, what do we think of? Noah's ark. And interestingly, the basket in which Moses was put in the Nile River is also called an ark. This is a different word. So it's, a tradi it's traditionally called the ark, but it's really a chest. 
It's a, it's a box. It doesn't sound perhaps as elegant to talk about the box uh, or the chest, but that's what it was. It was a chest, and this was placed in the most holy place. Um, it contained, or it would contain, the testimony that God would give to Moses. And what is the testimony that God would give to Moses? Well, we will find out that those are the tablets uh, with the commandments on them. And uh, that would contain the, 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 the box, the chest, would contain the testimony. And that testimony we saw last week, this, is, this was a covenant that was ratified. And so the, the, the tablets, the, the certification, the, the documents of the, of the covenant are deposited in the chest of the king's palace, as it were. And so there they are testified, uh, they are deposited, rather, for good keeping. That's why it's called the tent of the testimony sometimes. And then on top of that, we have what is called here the mercy seat. And that is a uh, traditional uh, description. It goes back to Martin Luther's German translation of the Bible. And uh, it, it's not a bad one, but it's, it's, it's an interpretation of this, this, this element that is on top of it. It was a lid. It was a cover. So we have the chest, and then we have the, the piece of it that went on top was this lid. And this lid had two sculptures, uh, golden sculptures of, of seraphim, or rather, I'm sorry, cherubim. Not sure really what the difference between seraphim and cherubim are personally, but these were cherubim, which reminds us of what? It reminds us of the ones that were guarding the way, guarding the way so that the humans who had been expelled from the garden could not get back into the garden and rashly take of the tree of life. So there are the, the sculptures of angelic creatures. But there's something significant here, and that is between these, these representations of these angelic creatures was empty space. Empty space. Now that's important because if you go look at, you go look at pagan uh, temples, they would have something in that central space. They would have a, an image of the God. And that's how you would worship that God, by worshiping that image. Here there is what looks like empty space between the cherubim. Now the word used to describe this lid is a word that's used only to describe this lid. It's not used elsewhere about any other thing. And so it looks like it was a kind of a, a, a new word to describe what was going on here. But it's not completely unique because it's a word that is related to a verb, and that verb means to cover, to cover over. Now, that's, 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 that's felicitous because we have a cover for the box, and that cover, it is called the coverer. And the word that's used, the verb that's used uh, to cover over has a reference to sin. So it is, it is the covering over sin place. It is the covering over sin lid. That's, that's a, a literal idea of, of what this was. It is a, a cover in two senses. It covers the ark, but it covers sin. That's where sin gets covered over. Now, what we find here is that it served a temporary purpose and then an ongoing purpose, this, this cover over sin cover. The first purpose was for God to speak to Moses, and that was temporary. Chapter 25, verse 22. There, there I will meet with you, singular, and from above the covering over sin lid, 
from between the two cherubim that are on the ark, the box, the chest of the testimony, I will speak with you singular about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is where Moses singularly would meet with God while he was alive. This is, this is where God would speak to him. But there was an ongoing purpose, and it's fascinating that that ongoing purpose is only barely alluded to in this whole section. We find out much more about that place and that ongoing purpose in Leviticus chapter 16. But it's only alluded to once here in this extended section. And it is in chapter 30, verse 10, when God is talking about another piece, the altar of incense. And it says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns, that is on the altar of incense, once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, of a covering over, he shall make covering over for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. This is the, the high and holy day of Yom Kippur. And this, this word Kippur is this word covering over. And, and so this is the day of covering over. We translate it atonement. This is the day of covering over. And where does this covering over take place? Well, it takes place on the covering over sin cover on place of the ark. We will talk more about that uh, next week when we, when we meet the priests and, and the ordination of the priests and what they were set apart to do. But just for now, remember that this is the place where atonement was made, where covering over of sin was made, and it was made by the sacrifice of innocent animal victims. So uh, it was a, a substitutionary idea that there were animals that symbolically bore the sins of the priests and bore the sins of the people so that their sins could be covered over. Now, more rapidly, there were other items in the in the uh, in and around the tent, there was the table, and we didn't read about it, but the table is in chapter 25, verses 23 to 30. The table of the presence, the table was in the holy place, and there was bread put out for the priests. And they put, the, put it out, and it was out there, and then they were able to eat it later. It was a, a bread for the priests. Notice, it was a bread for the priests, not for God. Because if you go to the pagan temples, there's an image of the God, and then there are sacrifices in order to sustain that God who is fed by the people. Well, here it's not God who is fed. It is the priests who are fed. And this may well be the background of the petition that we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. And that's what the priests received in the, the house of God. They received their daily bread uh, from God. Then there was the golden lampstand. Uh, we know this, uh, the menorah. That's in chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. That's the, the Hebrew word, the menorah, and that was to illuminate the holy place. It was dark in there, apart from this illumination, and it became a symbol for Israel to this day. That is one of the symbols of Israel. And we find in chapter 27 that it was, it was illuminated, or it, was, it burned, with a special oil, it was pure olive oil, and you find that in chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. It wasn't just common olive oil, it was, it was special pure olive oil. Then we have the bronze altar, 
which is in chapter 27, the first eight verses, the bronze altar was in the courtyard. It was outside. And so it was visible to the worshipers. And that's where most of the action took place. That's where most of the sacrifices took place. That's when the people would bring their sacrifices. They would be offered there, and they were witnesses to that as the the priests offered those on their behalf. Then there was another altar. That was the incense altar, and that was placed strategically. That's in chapter 30. That was uh, first 10 verses. That would place strategically at the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So as the priests uh, offered the bread and then took the bread, they also, they also offered incense uh, every day, even as they maintained the lamps burning. So every day they would go in, lamps burning, the bread of the presence, and the incense. That was the daily ritual of the priests in the holy place. And then the final thing was the bronze basin. The bronze basin was in chapter 30, verses 17 to 21. It was in the courtyard, and it was for the priests to wash their hands and feet before ministering before the Lord. And it says a couple of times they were to do that so they would not die, so that they would not die. So this was to keep them from dying by entering with with, uh, unclean hands or unclean feet. So that's that's the setup. Okay, do you got it in your mind or in the diagram? That was the setup. And so uh, what we're going to do is kind of jump to the end of the story and say, what are these details about? Uh, but before we do that, we should look at what they, what they said to Israel before what they said to us. What were the lessons that, that this whole structure had for Israel? And there are a number of lessons, but we can conclude at least some of these on, 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 uh, with great certainty, and that is this. The Lord dwells in the midst of his people according to their mode of living, to their mode of living. And I refer you back to the excellent meditation, the Christmas meditation that, that, uh, that Derek gave about the presence of God with his people in the Old Testament. He dwells with his people as his people dwell, according to their mode of living. Go back to the garden. And God, what did he do? He walked with his people as they walked around the Garden of Eden. And now they're in tents. And how is God dwelling with them in a tent? And then when they get to the promised land and they they get the city, David conquers the city of Jerusalem, and then God homesteads with them as they are dwelling in in homes and houses that are fixed, and he, he sets up a temple for himself there. That's the first lesson. God dwells in the midst of his people in the same mode in which they live. The second is this. The Lord determines how he will be worshipped. The Lord determines. And there is this. Do it exactly like I said. The Lord determines. It's not up to human ingenuity to say, I have a good idea. Let's, let's try this. We can read later about the sons of Aaron who tried that, and it did not go well for them. Then another lesson for Israel. The Lord needs no visible image And he needs no food from the hand of his people. He is not like the gods of the nations. He will not be represented by a visible image. And he does not need to be fed and sustained by the hands of his people. There's another lesson. Everything screams out this other lesson. And it's this. God is holy. God is holy. And therefore, it is dangerous for humans who are sinful to draw near to him. It's dangerous. That's why this, so that they don't die, 
That's why all these, these veils and these curtains and these, these structure and the, 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 the tiered system. Be, be very careful about approaching God, approaching God because he is holy. Now, the flip side of that is this. The Lord makes a way for sinful humans to approach him. So it's dangerous to approach him in any old way, but, but he makes a way for humans to approach him and be received favorably by him. That's what, the, that's what this whole structure screams out. And the way to approach him is by substitutionary sacrifice. By substitutionary sacrifice. There has to be a spotless sacrifice made on behalf of the spotted, the, the sinful people. And then the final thing that this screams out, not yet, but as we go through the Old Testament, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, for more than a millennium, this whole system screams out saying this, that it never finished the job. And that's how, that's how the Old Testament ends. They're still doing this at the end. And it hasn't finished the job yet. So in addition to these lessons for Israel, there are further lessons for us. The Lord, as we said, dwells among his people in the same way in which his people dwell. And we find that coming to its maximum expression in the New Testament. We find John calling the Son of God the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word, that word dwelt among us, is he tented among us. He pitched his tent among us. And how did he do it? He did it in the way that we live. And how do we live? We live with this stuff. We live with human flesh. This is our existence. And so he entered into dwell with his people in the closest way possible. Just like we dwell. He dwelt among us. He tented among us. And we beheld his glory. And then, the next lesson for us is that the Lord, dwelling in human flesh, became the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And this is really the message of the, message of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all, as we sang today, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, Jesus is the only way to approach God and be received favorably by him. He being the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He is the only way. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because he said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's why when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped down the middle from top 
to bottom. The way was thrown open. That, that veil that had, that had stood there for century after century after century saying, do not enter upon pain of death. When Jesus died, it was ripped apart and the way was opened. The only way to approach God and be received favorably. But what about our side? What's the lesson for us? That's what Jesus did. Well, how on our side do we approach God? It's not by sacrifices, but by faith in Jesus. Once again, Hebrews. If you want the commentary on Exodus, read Hebrews. Commentary on Leviticus and and Numbers, read Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Did you hear that? We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, more of that next week, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do we draw near? We draw near in full assurance of faith. That's the way. That's the way we enter into God's presence through Jesus, through faith in him. And then the question, but Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Where does God now dwell with his people? And the, the, the shocking, maybe, surprising answer is right here in the gathered assembly of his people. He dwells in the church because he has poured out his spirit on all believers. And as we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As unimpressive as we might look, we are the dwelling place of God, Paul says to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, folks. He says, do you not know that you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, elsewhere he says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but the emphasis there is you all As a body, as a corporate body, you all, the church, you are where God dwells. That's one of the reasons we come to church. Because God dwells among us. We meet with God here. And he speaks to us in this holy place. Now, if we read some of the books that I mentioned, or ones like them, that have such interruptions like the interruption we see today, Eventually, if we persevere to the end and we pay attention to the details, we have those glorious aha moments where we say, now I get it. Now I get why the sewer system of Paris is so important. I get it now. Aha. Well, I hope you'll have that that experience. The, The people of God had to wait for centuries They had to wait for more than a millennium to read the end of the story. And unfortunately, many of them missed it when the conclusion came. They, year after year, century after century, with the 
tabernacle and the temple and the offerings and the priesthood. And then the answer comes, the conclusion comes, the fulfillment of it all. That was the time to say, ah, now I get it. Now I understand why we had to do this over and over and over and over because it was never effectually going to take away sins. It was pointing forward to the one who takes away the sins of those who believe in him. We need to have that aha moment as well. And, and how much more? We didn't have to go through these centuries to wait. Christ has come. He's, he's taken up his, his dwelling as one of us. He's, he's given himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He entered the, the real most holy place. Not by blood of others, but by his own blood. And he, he left the door open after him. And, and we each need to have that aha moment. That aha moment where we realize that God is holy and we are not. And we, we, we become undone by that experience. And we say, woe is me. Is there any hope for somebody like me when God is as holy as he is holy? And then we see that the door has been left open. We say, how did the door get left open? And we find out that Jesus went through that door and he left it open for us to follow in to that most holy place through the blood, not of those animals, but through his own blood. He left the door open. You can enter through faith in him. And then, that's not the end of it. That's the start of it. Then you can meet with God in the company of his church. Have you had that aha moment where it's come together for you and you said, yes, God is holy. I am not. But Jesus is the way and he is my way and his people are now my people. Let's pray. Oh, God, we pray for that aha moment that all of us would have that when we would see ourselves as we are before you and see Jesus as he is and for what he did. And that we would enter through the veil by the blood of Jesus. Not to be rejected, but to be received favorably because the perfect sacrifice has been offered. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you today that we can meet with you. That you meet with us by your spirit. And we, we pray, O oh God, that we would, if we were already believers, and have had that, that definitive aha moment, that day by day we would have those little aha moments when we recognize ourselves, recognize you, and cling to Jesus, the, the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we pray for those outside. If he is the only way, Lord, we pray that you would use us to get this message out to others so that they too might come and join and meet with you. We pray this in his name. Amen.